On Tales of the Town, we've taken you on a journey of Black Oakland. From our ancestors' arrival after escaping white terrorism of the Jim Crow South, their maneuvering through redlined neighborhoods and lack of job opportunities, building their own communities and businesses, fighting back against police violence and sparking a revolutionary movement via the Black Panther Party, creating whole genres of music, developing a sports culture that the whole world has appreciated, and the Black population's current fight against social, economic, and political oppression via gentrification, houselessness, and police terrorism. But this wouldn't be a story about the history of Oakland without telling the history of the stolen native land that the town is on. And throughout this episode, we are going to take you back to the beginning, to the origins of Oakland, and who this land really belongs to, the Huchin Ohlone people. I'm Abbas Muntakim. And I'm Delincey Parham. And this is Tales of the Town, a podcast about Black Oakland. Our ancestors, you know, 200 years ago, you could drink the fresh water out of every single creek and stream in the Bay Area. Imagine that. And you could eat out of the Bay as much as you wanted. You could still see salamanders walking across the sidewalk and these fuzzy little caterpillars. And there would be tons of different kinds of butterflies a long time ago. Now, well, not that long ago, because everything you see in California and the Bay Area is less than 200 years old. Good day. My name is Karina Gould. I am the chairperson and traditional spokesperson for the Confederated Villages of Lashan. I'm also the co-founder and co-director of the Segorite Land Trust and Indian People Organizing for Change. Karina Gould is a Lashan Ohlone and was born and raised in Oakland, in the Huchin Territory. As a tribal leader, Karina fights for the protection of the Shell Mounds, which are sacred burial sites of Ohlone people. And she also fights for indigenous rights and sovereignty. I was actually born in Oakland Hospital on East 14th, which is now International Boulevard. And so growing up in Oakland was different. You know, I think that when I was going to school in high school, things are a little different than they were today, right? Because we have the internet today. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have those kinds of things when I was growing up. I got really socialized in a lot of uh, social justice stuff when I was in high school. And so that's really, I think, what made me who I am today. Huchin Territory, where Karina grew up, covers most of Oakland, Alameda, Berkeley, Emeryville, El Cerrito, Albany, and Piedmont in the Bay. And the language they speak is called Chochenyo. Chochenyo is the language that we spoke here in Huchin. So Ohlone people are actually eight different tribal people, nations, with eight different languages and eight different creation stories. And so the misnomer was that we're all the same. And that came from the Spanish back in when they first had contact here. When the Spanish first invaded what is now known as the East Bay Area, they called Ohlone people on these lands Costanoan, or people of the coast. But not all of these tribes were actually from the coast. The term Ohlone became a substitute identifier by the Spanish in 1853. The original Spanish term 
was Alhone, but along the way, around the early 1900s, Alhone became what is known now today as Ohlone. Fast forward to the 70s. Indigenous people in Northern California reclaimed the word Ohlone as their own identifier in protest of the Spanish settler colonial term Costanoan, which lumped all natives of the coast into one group. That's why it's really important to acknowledge that Ohlone people are not just one tribe. In fact, there are over 50 villages of tribes of Ohlone people all in different areas of Northern California. When we talk about the 50 Ohlone tribes, we look at them in terms of like eight different language groups. So the people of the East Bay spoke a language called Chochenyo, whereas the, the people in uh, San Francisco spoke Rumetush. Uh, down in Santa Cruz, the people spoke Awaswas. In the Santa Clara Valley, they spoke Tamian language. And then down in Monterey area is Rumson. So oftentimes people will associate it with the languages. But I, I think that if you were to ask somebody from that time period, how do they identify? They would have identified themselves in multiple ways in terms of their own village sites and the name of their village. They would have probably identified themselves in terms of the larger tribal unit that they were a part of, possibly along with the language that they spoke. So there's a, a very complex way that people would have identified that I think today, you know, we're only just starting to really understand. That's Martin Rizzo Martinez. He is a historian who specializes in looking at the history of indigenous peoples of the Bay Area, and he works for California State Parks. He's come across how the language of Chochenyo connected the different tribes of Ohlone people in the East Bay, people like Karina's great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, Jose Guzman, was one of the very last speakers, fluent speakers of the language of Chochenyo. That language base goes from right below the Carquina Straits down to about mid-San Jose and out to Highway 5. And so the Chochenyo's area is all of that area. But within that language area are multiple territories. So there was never one overarching tribe in a tribal language area. So just like that today, there are multiple tribes that are here today in the same language area. So although everyone spoke the same language in the East Bay, the different villages within the area, they had their own autonomy. But tribal dynamics changed as the Spanish missions were developed and colonized the area. Like we said earlier, Karina's Lashan Ohlone, which is a tribe part of the Huchin Ohlone territory. The Lashan people were colonized and enslaved at Mission San Jose in Fremont, California, and Mission Dolores in San Francisco. To give more context, the Spanish first arrived in San Diego in 1769. Shortly after that, they invaded what is now known as the Bay Area in the 1770s first arriving in what we know today as the Monterey Peninsula in California. Not only did they bring with them diseases and new cattle that changed the land, they forced Native Americans to build missions. Now, people have looked at the missions. I, I think the typical way that they're presented in Californian history is that they are sites of Catholic conversion, which is certainly a part of what they were intended to be. But the other side of it that, that people don't realize as often is that there was an intention, yes, to convert them to Catholicism, but probably more importantly for at least the colonial uh, Spanish colonialism, the project was to make them into the workers, the laborers 
of Spanish colonialism. So whenever any project happened, so you know, in the Pueblo of San Jose, whenever people wanted to build a building, they would have Native people from the mission come in and do this. And so there are parallels here between what was happening in the South with uh, plantation slavery. Of course, there's differences as well, but these were forced labor camps that people were kept in. Like Martin said, there were a lot of parallels between enslaved Africans in the South and how Native Americans were treated in these missions. The Spanish founded Mission Dolores in San Francisco in 1776, and it was built through the enslavement of Native Americans. It's where a lot of Huchinaloni people were held captive and subjugated to the brutality of colonizing Spaniards. And in true colonizer fashion, the Spanish created conditions on the land that gave indigenous people little to no choice but to enter the missions. When the Spanish arrived with their livestock, they took over these large fields where Native people would get their foods, they get seeds, they get different plants that they'd use for their baskets. And so as they started to lose the ability to get their resources and you know the traditional stuff that they would use, this created situations where people are starting to starve and things like this. So the reasons they would go into missions were, were varied. Some of it was losing tribal members as, let's say you were in a tribe of 200 people, if 50, 70 of those people ended up getting baptized and were forced to stay at the mission, all of a sudden you've lost you know, a quarter or more of your tribe. And it makes it difficult to function and to continue doing these things. Some tribal leaders entered the missions because they were afraid of losing their political powers. They thought if they entered the mission, they might be able to retain somebody's powers. So it's a very devastating time of, of loss. I mean, disease was coming through here, new diseases that Native people were not exposed to. And so this also was part of this, right? They saw new diseases and some of them very likely wondered, well, is it possible that these Padres might have answers to this? Our traditional medicines are not working to help us with these. So this is a time, as one historian characterized it, as a, a time of little choice. It was a time of devastation. And these oppressive missions continue to grow. Martin says that in 1794, the Spaniards started to look for more Native people on the coast to baptize and enslave. And this is when some Huchin Chichanyo Ohlone people living in the East Bay were captured by these missionaries who were using religion as a vessel for their colonization. And in fact, the mission population rose from about 600 in mid-1794 to about 1,000 by April of 1795. And tribes from what is now known as Oakland were being forced to split up to different missions that were being built around California. This, in many ways, is genocidal. So some of the people are sent to Mission Dolores in San Francisco, and some are sent down to Mission San Jose in Fremont. And this is a strategy of colonialism that happens over and over again, especially with particularly powerful tribes where the Spanish would see that they had power, they were afraid that they would continue to have, hold power within the missions, and so they would divide them, right, divide and conquer kind of an old old strategy, right? But um, this happened all the time with tribal members. This happened with uh, family members, right? Uh, happened within, you know, particular tribes and kinship bonds and, you know, across families were sent to different directions. And throughout the missions in California, Native people were forced to get baptized, were often whipped, raped, enslaved, and got diseases such as syphilis from the Spanish padres who ran the missions. It's devastating. Mission Santa Cruz, over 90% of the people who are baptized there 
died before the mission ended in this 40-year period. Uh, San Juan Batista, 85%. North Bay ones, maybe a little lower, maybe 80%, but upwards of 80 to 90% of the people who went into the missions died. And on top of that, the infant mortality numbers are horrific in the missions. In Mission Santa Cruz, there's about 500 Native children who are born during the period from 1791 to 1835. And of these children, when I looked at them to see how long did they survive, when when did they die, over 50% died before reaching the age of one, died in infancy. And then when I looked further into this, over 25% died before age of five, which means over 75% of the children born at Mission Santa Cruz while the mission was running died as toddlers before reaching the age of five. Along with the high rate of infant mortality, indigenous women in the missions were treated in some of the most inhumane ways. Women were kept in basically what were equivalent to prisons. They were locked in there. There was one door in and out that had a key that was locked. Usually the key was held by a priest or by some man who was put in charge there. They were kept in these. They were poorly ventilated. They've been described by people at the time as disease-ridden and just terrible, terrible situations. So women were kept in these. And there are stories that come out that priests would go in there and sexually abuse the women inside the dormitories. The way indigenous people were treated in these missions was extremely violent, and these conditions ultimately led to the murder and captivity of multiple tribes. But something that a lot of these history books leave out is that many indigenous people fought back and revolted against the genocidal padres and Spanish colonial rule in the missions. There's so many ways that people fought back, whether it was through you know, fleeing as fugitives, whether it was outright challenging their stories of them assassinating some of the padres and fighting back, or whether it's through work stoppages or whatever it is. But survival itself, in the face of 90% losses, survival itself was a revolutionary act of resistance. And in order for indigenous communities to survive, they resisted by any means necessary. Martin said that many indigenous women were leading these acts of resistance. One particular event in which Native women were able to resist is through inviting priests to come out and bless their dying relatives. And once this would happen, they would take this opportunity to ambush the priest and the soldiers. And so in some ways, women were able to find ways to subvert colonialism by, you know, basically by staying out of the view of the Spanish because they couldn't conceive of them as being leaders. And this one Native woman, Yekenensai, she says, hey, let's tell the padre, this guy Quintana, who's this abusive padre, sadistic padre, uh, let's tell him that he has to perform funeral rites for, for my husband who's old and dying. And so they draw him out there and a group of young men basically attack him and kill him. And then they put him back into his bed and pretended like he died in natural causes, which actually lasts for about a year before the Spanish figure it out. So I tell you this story is as one of, of rebellion, but also one where, where Native people are reacting to this colonialism and are learning from each other. They see a strategy that works in one area, and they bring that strategy down there. They, they travel down to another area, and they, they relate, hey, this is what worked up here. Let's try this over here. Put me on 
We've reached the point in the show where it's time for us to put you on something. The oppression of black and new African people and indigenous people have many similarities. Not only were we both oppressed by the same colonizers, there's similarities between what we faced as well. Both Africans and indigenous people have experienced both slavery and genocide by the hands of these Europeans. And both of us were subjected to forced labor. And we can't talk about the colonization of America without understanding how Africa was colonized. The wealth that was built from the colonization of the continent and the enslavement of our people literally built the ships that these Europeans used to sail to the so-called New World. And so, being grounded in this history, of course there will be many similarities between Southern plantations and California missions. Both plantations and missions use Western Christianity to justify the enslavement of indigenous and African people. And this slavery went on to build the wealth of the colonizers who owned the plantations and missions. And this was also spiritual warfare. The colonizers removed our religions and spiritual practices and replaced them with their own. And we both rebelled against these European oppressors by any means necessary and waged revolutionary struggles and efforts to free the land from Euro-American control. And one thing that doesn't get mentioned is that we also built community amongst each other. At times, Africans would escape the bondage of slavery and find refuge with the tribes, oftentimes intermixing, having families, and living in peace and harmony. And understanding our history is important if we are to build a better future, a future where both Africans and indigenous people are free on this land. Before we go on, here's a reminder to check out the Tales of the Town album. All proceeds from the music go towards supporting people's programs. Here's a snippet of Rise Up featuring OG Davey and Palavi, aka Fijiana. Bit off the gram, hauling ass for the check, run a hole inside my vans. Knuckles to the bone, dripping blood on the bands. How I'ma rise up if the falling never ends? Niggas come from good stocks, we ain't never gonna drop. I just hustle like my pops, I just hustle like my mom's pops. Tell me work hard, cause I'm not a Steve Jobs. Crackers gone, hold you up unless you got a good job. I just wish it all stopped, need a moment to recoup. I got bills in the mail, sick and tired eating soup. So my niggas, let's regroup. Now we're all inside the stoops, never turned to my crew. I had way too much to lose. I'ma hop my ride and then smash out Hit this weed till I pass out Need more Dave, you better cash out Shit get big, I never back down Bitch back up, I said, wise up G's don't die, we just rise up World get cold, but I'm fired up World get cold, but I'm fired up Now back to the story after the Spanish colonized Huchinaloni land in the 1770s, Luis Maria Peralta, who was a soldier in the Spanish army, took colonial control of the land that is now known as the East Bay in the early 19th century. This area, which includes Oakland, was known at the time as Rancho San Antonio. Our ancestors quite literally went from being slaves at the missions to being slaves on these Mexican ranchos all over the Bay Area. That's Karina who we heard from earlier. Like she said, indigenous people who were enslaved in the missions 
became enslaved on these ranchos like Rancho San Antonio. Then after the Mexican-American War from 1846 to 1848, California became a state in the U.S. The Peralta family, who first colonized the East Bay, were basically tricked into mortgaging their land to another colonizer named Horace Carpentier and lost it. So Horace took the land and became known as the first mayor of Oakland, even though none of this shit was white people's land to begin with. Oakland was not the same way it is today. Oakland was just on the very west side of the lake, and the east side of the lake was called Brooklyn. And so today we see these huge cranes in the skies that are building this place called Brooklyn right along the Embarcadero right now, and that's where that name comes from. So yeah, what is now known today as Oakland used to be known as both Brooklyn and Oakland, but eventually just became known as Oakland because of all the oak trees around. In 1852, white colonizer Horace Carpentier persuaded the new California state legislator to incorporate Oakland as a town. So the landscape changed. The oak trees were cut. The redwood trees were cut down in order to make buildings. The waterways were channeled, you know, and polluted. They used Lake Merritt was really a sewer for a while. The first laws of California were laws of uh, California extermination of Indians. And our first governor in California basically said there needs to be an extermination of the red men. And so they created these laws with the federal government sending money to California, $1.4 million to hunt Native people. So our ancestors had to go into hiding, had to do a lot of different things in order to survive and be here today. And so that changes a landscape as well. When Native people aren't able to have the reciprocity and live in the ways that they are inherently supposed to be on this land, it changes the landscape, not just for them, but for everybody that lives on the land, which is why we're doing the work about rematriation today. It's about bringing back those sovereign uh, ways of living and those inherent duties of, of the land and trying to bring people along with us to do that kind of work. And Karina and the indigenous organizations in the East Bay are fighting back in many ways. Around 1999, Karina and other Native organizers form the organization Indian People Organizing for Change, which seeks to defend and restore sacred sites. One of these sites was the Naval Station, which closed down in 1997. And another was the old Oakland Army Base, which closed in 1999. Upon the closing of both, Native organizations in the Bay Area, like IPLC, fought to get land that was on the Naval Station in Alameda returned to Native people. And they were successful. And with this, they were able to create temporary housing for their people at the naval base. And while they were doing this work on the old army base, simultaneously, the tech boom happened. This was one of the reasons redevelopment happened in areas like Emeryville, which is a city on the border of Western North Oakland. And it's also on top of one of the biggest Ohlone shell mounds, which is a ceremonial and sacred burial site for indigenous people in the Bay Area.
1909, a UC Berkeley archaeologist named Nels Nelson counted 425 shell mounds around the Bay Area. But many believe there were way more that have been destroyed by colonization and development. Throughout the Bay Area, and especially in Emeryville, developers have destroyed Ohlone burial sites, from creating dance pavilions in the 1800s on top of shell mounds, which means they were literally dancing on graves, to constructing amusement parks for settlers to go to. This type of inhumane and genocidal behavior in the name of capitalism and development was the norm. And as society, quote-unquote, progressed, so did the colonizing practices of destroying the land and environment. It went from pavilions and amusement parks to building chemical plants and factories. All of these factories that were there were just throwing tons of acid and other kinds of things into the ground. And so when it would rain, Temescal Creek is right there. It would go into Temescal Creek and out to the bay, which is part of the reason why we can't fish in the bay as much as we want anymore. I mean, any of us, right? If you wanted to go fishing, they recommend that you don't eat more than one fish a week out of there. So that's not sustainable. You can't actually sustain yourself by eating the fish in the bay anymore. It got so bad that the city had to clean up the toxic waste they created in Emeryville. Part of this cleanup was creating the Bay Street Mall. Emeryville was the first one that we started doing education and going to city council meetings and asking them to save shell mounds from being destroyed. And and we all know that that didn't happen. According to Karina, the Bay Street Mall was built on top of a shell mound that was around 350 feet tall and more than three stories high making it the largest one recorded in the Bay Area. And so we go there the day after Thanksgiving for over 20 years now to ask people to remember that this is still a sacred place. Even though they've built on top of it, hundreds of our ancestral remains still are underneath that land. And that we go there to offer prayers to them and to remind people that this doesn't have to happen anymore. That we as You know, a society can decide that we won't destroy these sacred places anymore. Emeryville Mall is built on a 3,500-year-old sacred site. Respect Indian rights. Respect our sacred sites. Do not shop the mall. Do not shop the mall. Respect our rights. And although Bay Street now has a monument dedicated to the Shell Mound and the indigenous Ohlone people buried there, the fight is far from over. The devastation of our burial sites, our shell mounds, are currently happening today. So it's not something that as long ago, you know, it's a continuous genocide of a people's culture and ways of life that happened through development in our territories. A current fight that Karina is a part of is the Segorite Land Trust, which according to their website, is an indigenous women-led land trust in Oakland that facilitates the return of indigenous land to indigenous people. We have no land base because we're not federally recognized. That means that for the most part, we're homeless in our own homelands, right? Segorite Land Trust started in earnest about five or six years ago. The land trust was created around figuring out how do we bring indigenous lands back to indigenous hands for a bunch of different reasons. And so of the 475,000 acres of 
homeland in just Alameda County, Ohlone people have less than two acres. And that includes the land that the land trust is currently taking care of. The land trust was co-founded by Native organizer Janella LaRose. And like Karina mentioned, the land trust, it's a way to ensure that through rematriation, cultural revitalization, and land restoration, the Huchin Ohlone Chichenyo culture and language can thrive. And so really, Sigorite Land Trust is trying to bring people back to those original teachings that we've all had in our histories. And so how do we rematriate land? How do we rematriate our minds? How do we go back to living in a way where we take care of one another and it's not about the almighty buck? And so I think that rematriation pushes us to think about those ideas. How do we change our, our mindsets so that we all have an abundant life to live? So we've talked a lot about how Oakland is on Ohlone land and how the fight is not over for indigenous people in the Bay Area. But it's important that we connect the dots between Native and Black folks' struggle for freedom. But to do so, we first need to give the historical context as to how legislation in the 50s helped create the revolutionary conditions of the 60s and 70s. In 1953, Congress passed House Concurrent Resolution 108, which called for the end of reservations, federal services, and protections as rapidly as possible. This termination policy gave one-way bus tickets to Native Americans to leave the reservations with promise of good jobs. This was a clear attempt to force Native people to assimilate or become Americanized, a.k.a. become indoctrinated into white supremacist capitalist culture. Oakland was one of those places that they shipped people to, Chicago, L.A., New York, San Francisco. And so there has always been a huge intertribal community in the Bay Area because of those forced relocation policies. These policies forced Native people to assimilate in these new cities and was the catalyst for the formation of the American Indian Movement and the Red Power Movement. The Indians, about 30 of them, have been here since last weekend when, against federal regulations, they set up a camp on the mountainside close to the memorial. They claim these Black Hills of South Dakota are legally theirs by treaty, and they have come to take them back. Founded in Minneapolis in 1968, the American Indian Movement first sought to improve conditions for Native Americans who were shipped to various cities. It later grew into an international movement whose goals included the full restoration of tribal sovereignty and treaty rights. The movement was inspired by the Black Power Movement and the Black Panther Party, which had formed two years earlier. You know, the Black Panthers worked with the American Indian Movement around starting up houses and ways of being in this world, you know, uh, starting up the free breakfast programs and American Indian people did the same thing during that time, you know, worked really closely with uh, our freedom schools that we had here in Oakland at the same time that Black Panthers were running um, similar organizations and programming. And so, you know, some of the work that our our folks have done have run parallel to each other. Throughout Black and Indigenous history on Turtle Island, a.k.a. North America, there's been a shared struggle. If we look at the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement, 
Both groups were militantly fighting to free the land from Euro-American control, which led to the incarceration of both Black and Indigenous political prisoners and prisoners of war. One of them was Leonard Peltier, an Indigenous political prisoner who is still incarcerated to this day. At the trial, they had admitted racist on the jury. They uh, wouldn't allow me to put up a defense uh, uh, and manufactured evidence, manufactured witnesses, uh, tortured witnesses. Uh, uh, you know, the, the list is, just goes on. So I think I'm a very good candidate for, uh, for clemency or house arrest, at least. For those who don't know, Leonard Peltier was an American Indian Movement organizer. In the 70s, Peltier, he was asked by the members of the Oglala Sioux Tribe at Pine Ridge, South Dakota, to support and protect the indigenous community that was being targeted. And so he and a small group of young AIM members went to a ranch owned by the traditional Jumping Bull family. In 1975, two FBI agents in unmarked cars followed a pickup truck onto the Jumping Bull Ranch. More than 150 agents and law enforcement officers surrounded the ranch, and a shootout began. Peltier was later convicted for the deaths of two FBI agents who died during the 1975 shootout on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, despite the fact that FBI agents lied to the jury got false witness testimonies by the use of torture and ignored court orders. Peltier, he has been in prison for over 44 years. Peltier is in the same position that many of our new African and black prisoners of war in the U.S. find themselves in. Elders like Kamal Siddiqui, Veronza Bowers, Rochelle McGee, Ed Poindexter, and many others who are still in prison today for fighting back against Euro-American colonial rule. It was important for us to do this last episode on the history of the Ohlone land that Oakland resides on and how the new African and Black and Indigenous fights for liberation are interconnected. We asked Karina about this interconnection and how we can continue to build more solidarity amongst new African and Black and Indigenous people. We both have been enslaved. We have been dispossessed from our homelands. And so that's important, that we stand in solidarity with each other on this land and that we continue to be allies to each other and trying to figure out how, how to live in reciprocity and work in reciprocity on the lands that we now call our home. Since producing this episode, the city of Oakland has made plans to return five acres of land in the Oakland Hills back to indigenous stewardship. This plot of land, known as Sequoia Point, will be rematriated by the Segorate Land Trust, as well as the Confederated Villages of the Lashan Nation, which is an East Bay Ohlone tribe. We hope you've been inspired by these stories from the town. 
and that it leads you to exploring the history of the city that you're in. We also hope this season has inspired you to begin organizing for revolutionary change in our communities. Tales of the Town is hosted and executive produced by me, Abbas Mutakim, and Delancey Parham. Our senior producer is Maya Cueva. Fact-checking is done by Danya Suleiman and Bashir Mack. Mixing and sound design is done by Pat Masidi Miller and Warren Newsom. The theme song was produced by Cheyenne G and Carrie Lynn. Additional music by CFC, Jonathan York, and Chef Lee. The artists we featured on this episode are OG Davey and Pallavi, a.k.a. Fijiana. Special thanks to Karina Gould and Martin Rizzo Martinez. If you would like to support the work the Segorte Land Trust is doing, visit segorte-landtrust.org. Head over to the National Jericho Movement to support Peltier and new African political prisoners and prisoners of war. If you like what you heard on this show, give us a five-star review and share it with your people. Continue to support Tales of the Town and the Hella Black Podcast by subscribing to our Patreon. Patreon.com backslash Hella Black Pop. Thank y'all for the support. Free the people and free the land.